Hi, this is Robert Reese, and welcome to the Middle Market Transformative CEO Show with my co-host, Joe Brusuelis, Chief Economist of RSM. We interview top middle market CEOs so you could gain insights onto how to grow your own business and become a transformative CEO. Hello, America. Robert Reese and Joe Brusuelis here, and our guest today is Michael Hansen, CEO of Cengage. How are you? I'm good. Good to be here. And we're going to be talking about really interesting topics. Number one, your financial turnaround and the challenges you had to go through for that. Number two is your new business model. And number three is technology, AI, and how that's impacting the world you're in today. Before we get started, Joe, could you give a definition of what the middle market is? All right, so the middle market in the United States are the 200,000 firms that have revenues between 10 million and 2 billion. That accounts for approximately 40% of gross domestic product, and they employ one-third of the U.S. labor market. This is an area of the economy that's not really given a lot of attention, and truthfully, not a lot is known about it. And that's why it's important that we have people like Mike on to talk about the activity in this crucial portion of the economy. So let's talk about your business, which is which is a leader in the middle market in the in the school book industry for colleges. Talk about what the business is right now. Well, the business really is, in essence, there are 20 million students every year in higher ed in the United States. And what we are supplying them with is the crucial information, the content that they need to learn a variety of topics, starting with psychology, accounting, mathematics, physics, you name it, we have it. So we cover the waterfront on all the topics that you would typically learn in college. So let's start off. You became CEO in 2012. In fairness, Cengage was going through serious challenges. Talk about what the situation was like when you came in. So the serious challenge was that the company um, operated in a business model that for decades was very stable, very profitable, and frankly, the industry had overstayed its welcome in that business model, uh, meaning there was not a lot of innovation and private equity firms got interested in the business because they liked the stability of the cash flow. So the firm was bought in 2007 by a private equity firm. Lots of debt was put on the business. And slowly but steadily, the business model was crumbling. That's what I found when I, when I joined the company in 2012. So how did you transform the model to bring it into a period of stability, if not profitability? Well, let me elaborate one more round on what was wrong with the model. The wrong, what was wrong with the model is the students needed the content. But because the industry had tremendous pricing power, they kept using their pricing power. So that's why you got all these articles and everybody's experience. You walk into a college bookstore, all of a sudden this book is like $180, $250, $350. And the users had basically said, this is unacceptable. Yes, we need the content, but we find other ways of getting them. And they found them, legally and illegally. So what happened was the units, the number of books sold, got down every year to the tune of like 10%, and prices were raised to the tune of 10 15% every year. So the secondary market developed by students and independent entrepreneurs essentially kicked the underpinnings out of that business model. Okay, you get to that point, how did you move forward to put it on a more stable, sustainable track? The first thing we had to do, because we had this boatload of debt on the business, we had to get rid of the debt. And you had, I think, it was $5.5 billion, That right? is exactly right, Robert. It was $5.5 billion for a company our size. You know, we are $1.6 billion. We're straight in that middle market segment. 
we were very profitable, but this was way too much debt, particularly under these stressed circumstances. So the first thing we had to do is take the company through a Chapter 11 process, which uh, mm. is a um, you know an, an interesting endeavor uh, to do that. Uh, but we did it successfully uh, within the scope of nine months. It was sort of like getting um, a ticket to be the captain on the Titanic. It's a little bit like that, I would say, except for that uh, every passenger in every class of the Titanic has a big, bold opinion what you should be doing, and everybody feels free to yell at you no matter where you are on the Titanic. So, Okay, let's fast forward. We talked about textbooks, but this isn't, we're not really talking about textbooks anymore, are we? We're talking about interactive content that's often dynamic and over time, I'm sure, is going to change rapidly. Joe, I wish you were right, but unfortunately the reality is that this industry has seen very little innovation over hmm. the past hundred years. If you look today in a typical college uh, class, you would walk in there. It wouldn't look much different than all the three of us were in college, right? I mean, it's essentially a teacher. It's essentially, you know, many people have books, loose leave or whatever they have. But, you know, the, the, the technology is only about to make really an entrance into this space. And this is something we're focusing on very, very heavily to make sure that the students are actually getting a state-of-the-art 21st century education as opposed to, you know, reading the same old book over and over again. Well, let's talk about what that content looks like and what you think it's going to look like five and ten years out. Yeah. What's very interesting is, like, if you take it, let me be very specific, if you take a course, like Introduction to Accounting, right, the content is still the same. I mean, accounting is accounting is accounting, right, mm -hmm. in, in a way. So the content is the same. But now the way we can in deliver this content is actually much more customized to the individual learner. So there are some learners that actually learn much better through visual clues. We give them, you know, videos. Uh, we give them the ability to actually game. So we, you know, we've gamified a lot of our content so that they can actually play games and learn concepts that way. Um, we give them the ability to consistently test themselves, not just a midterm and then a final, but you know, consistently along the way, every day they can test, did I understand that concept? Okay, if I understand that, I can actually move to the next concept. So it's a lot more customized to the individual and it's a lot more interactive, as you said before. So when you're doing this, you're capturing data. You're capturing data from students in, um, in, in their digital visual behavior and how they use data and how they learn. What do you do with all this data? Absolutely, and Robert, that is actually the key underpinning of the future innovation. For the first time, we really have data that makes the learning process transparent, that actually shows you how an individual learns and how different individuals learn. And what you can use this for is first and foremost in our case is to continue to evolve and adapt the content. Because if I need to explain a concept to you, it might actually be a different way than I need to explain it to you for you to get it right away relative to Joe. So I can now do that, but I need the underlying data that shows me how much time did you spend on the task, what aspects did you get, and what aspects didn't you get. So there is really this wealth of data that we're mining for product development. Obviously, we are being hugely respectful of the privacy of the student because this is an area where you know you you have to be very respectful of the privacy because it's very it's uh, not idea. something HIPAA compliant but you really have to it's be a caretaker of yeah that. it's akin to that I mean it's, it's almost like HIPAA compliant uh, we, we, we are the caretaker we believe fundamentally this information is the information that belongs to the student but obviously any institution that the student is at would like to also get the insight so we're making sure that we are uh, 
in the short that. time that you've been looking at the data in a more intensive way, what have you learned about your client base that you didn't know before? Well, we've learned a, a lot about individual clients, right? I mean, if you think about the learning process and if you think about our own experience, right, in every class, essentially the teacher teaches to the middle of the class, not the kids that are way ahead and not the kids that are way behind, right? They teach to the middle. And now we have the ability to actually take the kids that are way ahead and challenge them more and give them more you know, individual attention, not necessarily only through the teacher's time, but also the way that we challenge them through content. Likewise, we actually enable people to, that are behind to actually catch up because we could do it at their own pace. But more importantly than that, I think the next frontier is really what's commonly called work readiness, right? If you talk to employers today, a lot of them are complaining, you know, I got a lot of students coming out of school, but they don't need to, they don't know what they need to know for the job, right? So give you one very transparent example. We have lots of nurses. Well, when the nurses graduate from nursing school, a hospital on average spends $40,000 to train them before they actually can go and take care of a patient. $40,000? After you spend, you know, some cool $60,000 on the education, seems an awful lot of money before somebody can actually be productive. So that's some things we're learning as well. How do we make the learning content more relevant for the work that they actually do? Okay, well, let's get into that because obviously work readiness, preparing the workforce of the future as, you know, the technological context changes. What are we talking about? Are we talking about software-specific, more remedial, quantitative type uh, material or really focusing in on I need to develop a skill set or two skill sets and we're going to go down that road. Yeah, it's interesting, Joe. I think the first thing we're talking about is to actually map what employers require in a specific job to a learning objective in a school. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, that doesn't happen today, right? The, the person that gets trained, and let me use a simple example. Outside, you have persons that gets, uh, get trained on as an HVAC technician, right? Well, if you then try to apply for a job for carrier, you don't necessarily have the, the required skill for that particular job at carrier. So we can now map it back into the education process. And the same true is if you become an, an analyst at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, right? There is a process to actually map the learning objectives, but no school ever thought about it that way because they really didn't have the underlying data to map those two bits things together. We're about to take a break now. Back in a few. Hi, this is Robert Reese, Joe Bruce Willis, and we're, we're talking with Michael Hansen, the CEO of Cengage, and you are the leader in textbooks. And I want to ask a question about the cost of textbooks, but I know that, Joe, right before the break, you had a question you were burning to ask. All right, so I've got some friends who work at Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is now insisting that everybody take a basically a three-day boot camp on programming, largely around Python, right? When you're going ahead and looking at your business and you're thinking, where do we want to develop? Where's the margin? How do we want to channel this? What's easier, training somebody in Python or training somebody to pass that HVAC test? <laughs> That's an interesting question. And I, frankly, Joe, had never thought about it in terms of that juxtaposition. But what, what I will say is, uh, you know, with all due respect to Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs doesn't employ the vast majority of, mm-hmm. of people in the United States. Um, the vast majority of people in the United States right now need 
fundamental basic skills to actually cope with the requirements of the jobs in the 21st century. And these are often software-based jobs, and in many cases, um, you know, coming out of high school, they lack the necessary skills to do that. So there's a big emphasis on some, you know, basic software training. There is a big emphasis on STEM, uh, as we have talked about many a times, and there is also related to that a big emphasis on women in STEM, because in many respects, you know, often there are barriers perceived or real barriers for an adequate amount of women to acquire the necessary underlying basic skill set so that they can actually be effective in, in uh, the 21st century economy. How do you redefine the material to attract women to get into STEM? Is, is it substantially different or just different on the margin? No, I mean, I think it's what I said before in terms of customization to the learning style of the individual, whether it's a, women, a woman or a man, and I don't want to, you know, sort of uh, standardize that. But, but um, I think also importantly, and we're coming back to what we said before, cost is a real barrier. And while our industry kind of neglected it for a long time, um, what we see from the data, from the surveys that we're doing, in many cases, people and women are saying, you know what, well, the cost of the textbook is too high, I'm really not going to take this course, I'm not going to experiment with this, and we need to get them over the hurdle to experiment with it. So let's talk about those co textbook costs. You mentioned $350. Coincidental, I'm on my 30th anniversary with my wife uh, last week, and my daughter calls us up, she's a freshman in college, and she says, Dad, we just want, I want to let you know my Italian textbook is $350. <laughs> so you hear this, and I'm thinking there's a lot of people, $350 for one book seems a lot. What I want to hear about is your new model, which you went into, the subscription model, which is you've sort of thrown away your current model as the leader, which takes a lot of guts to do, and now moving into this whole subscription model. Talk about what this different business model is and the path that you're now on and where you see it going. Absolutely. Before I do that, congratulations on your 30th anniversary. I think Thank that's you a very milestone. Much. <laughs> um, so, Robert, we absolutely, we turned the model around. And we asked ourselves a simple question. We said, look, the our customers, the students, are telling us, this is too expensive. Your daughter would have probably said, this is crazy expensive. Um, and we said, why don't we flip the model to a completely different preposition, which is essentially, all of our content is available. You just pay us a monthly, or in this case, per semester, subscription fee. We know this model from Netflix. We know this model from Spotify. Students are very used to this model, and we've tested it obviously before we went out, and we found an overwhelmingly, you know, overwhelming response. The bet that you alluded to that we were taking is, all the students that used to go, you know, I don't want to buy anything, or you know, this is too expensive, let me postpone, or maybe I can get by with copying or sharing or whatever, they will now come in and say like, this is such a compelling value proposition, I'm going to go for it. Uh, talk the actual numbers. Actual numbers is. Per semester, $120, $119.99 to be precise, you get everything you need that we have in our possession. Every single course. Every single need. course that is a Cengage course, and as you said, we are the leader in the industry, every single course, and importantly, every single access code to our software. So every software platform that we have, we have five major software platforms, depending on what course you're in, you get the access code and you get the experience that we talked about earlier. What, what if one of the courses isn't a Cengage course? 
What do you, well, what do, you do then? Because you may be the leader, but not 100% of the course. Well, not 100%. Uh, what we're seeing right now is that more and more professors are actually going over to our model because they find it very compelling. But if they don't, so let's say you only have two Cengage courses, right? You don't have five. Like a mm -hmm. typical the student has five courses. You know, our competitors, I would hope, are catching up to the model relatively soon. But right now, you would still have to buy the individual textbook from the competitors. But to put a number on it and get very specific, typically for just one course, you would spend more than $120 on your textbook. So if you have two courses with Cengage, your savings are, you know, well in the hundreds of dollars. So when you have such a pricing model, especially in the new, new economy we're in, where once you've developed something digitally, the marginal cost of reproduction tends to fall to zero. The cost of access, the cost of distribution is just next to non-existent. What sort of encryption um, security are you putting in around your product to protect it? Because the way you're, you're describing this is a beautiful product. But I would worry about the competition laterally from everybody. Yeah, what's interesting about this is two things. I mean, we're putting a lot of protection of um, students sharing, uh, you know, the access code mm -hmm. to Sengage Unlimited, which is the product, uh, what the product is called. Um, and it was actually the first thing my 15-year-old son told me. He said, "You got to be careful that people don't share." So the the things that we that we actually put in place is geolocators, so we know who provides access where, so you can share with somebody that is not in the geography that you're in. We're limited to specific devices. And one of the key things that is actually different from a Netflix subscription to our subscription, you are actually committing your own data to the, to the platform. In other words, your grades are in there. You don't want to share your grades with your next door buddy. Mm. Your test results are in there. You don't want to share that necessarily. So it's, it becomes the more usage there is, the more customized it becomes. So there's a bit of a natural barrier to that. And then the second point that you alluded to, Joe, is sort of other competitors coming into this market. What's really interesting is if you think about the franchises around, you know, the big disciplines, accounting, uh, psychology, etc., they've been around for decades, right? And if you take one, Greg Mankiw, Introduction to Economics, we probably had, mm -hmm. had it all. He's one of our authors. Uh, you know, it's very hard for even a Google or an Apple to replicate that unless they have the content. So the content is still king. No, that's yep. interesting because 20 years ago I used to use that when I taught macro and micro. And we used Apple out of Stanford and we constructed, we constructed markets in the classroom, live. Got it. Online, right? Got it. So where is something like that going to go? Is it really And we only have a little over a minute. Over a minute. So I'll make it very short. Applia now is actually one of our platforms. So we bought Applia a while ago. And, you know, we believe that ultimately this is going to go into the ecosystem that we're building. We believe that ultimately we're going to have an ecosystem of, you know, 10 million users in, in the United States of the 20 million student, hopefully more than that, uh, that operate in this ecosystem based on simplicity, and customization and an affordable price point. Final question on your leadership philosophy. When you took over, you had 5.5 billion in debt for 1.7 billion dollar company. That's a lot. You cut down four billion of debt, and then you've created a new business model, which is a subscription model going online. What advice do you have in terms of leadership, having gone through these two experiences? The two biggest pieces of advice I would have is. When you walk into a situation like that, which was phenomenally difficult, do not believe for a second that you have all the answers, but firmly believe that the people in your organization have the answers. And one thing you've got to be good at is listen. Listen carefully. 
and then you distill it up, and then you chart the course. The answers are there, you just gotta have an ability to listen. And the second thing I would say, the biggest lesson for me is, as the CEO, focus relentlessly on culture. Yes, strategy is important, and it's important to get it right. But if you focus on culture, you can actually replicate. You can, we can launch a model like this new model in record time. I think part of the reason that our competitors are struggling is they don't have the same culture that we have. On that note, a pleasure having you on the show. Great to be here. Thanks.